Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Commercial Property Investor Podcast, where it's my job to introduce you to people from the world of commercial property. We're talking with investors and thought leaders about their experiences of the commercial property world and sharing our own lessons from the last 20 years to give you practical know-how so that you can follow in their footsteps. If you've ever thought commercial could be your next step, but it just seems too confusing and opaque, then you've come to the right place. There are so many exciting opportunities in this dynamic sector, and I'm looking forward to pulling back the curtain and sharing them with you. Welcome to the Commercial Property Investor Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Alexander. Thank you for choosing to listen in. If you're new to the podcast, our objective is to help private investors move into commercial property investing. Some weeks we interview guests that have a particular specialism in commercial property, or they might have just some great experience to share. And then in other episodes, I go into more technical details about different aspects of investing in this great asset class. This is one of those technical episodes. You see, I had a question from Darren and Gillian Green recently, and it was a bit of a technical question, and it led me to realise that I've lots of checklists. The problem is they're all in my head. Each time you get to a different stage in the process of purchasing or developing out commercial buildings, there are a multitude of different things you need to do. And as I've mentioned before, doing this podcast is really forcing me to take the time to think through the activities, which is really helping, but it is pretty painful exercise. So every now and then I'm going to release an episode with another one of those checklists. They may not be the most exciting episodes, but they should really help you get through each of those stages with a bit more clarity and confidence. So thank you again to Darren and Gillian for the inspiration. You should check these guys out, by the way. They're doing a fantastic job in property investing, utilising quite a number of different strategies, You'll find them on Instagram. Jill is jillgreen underscore property and Darren is Darren underscore green underscore coaching. Darren actually recorded an interview with me back on episode 64, so you might recognise the name. So let's just set the scene. You've been doing all your research, identified what the gaps are in your chosen market area, and you found a building that ticks a lot of the boxes. Then gone on to make an offer. And after a bit of toing and froing, back and forth with some negotiation, you've had an offer accepted. Now, if you're doing this properly, then you will have many of these conversations and negotiations going on at the same time, over a number of months, sometimes even longer. And when a potential deal gets to this stage, it can sometimes be a bit of a surprise. Like, wow, someone's actually acknowledged my offer, and not only that, they've gone and accepted it. So for me, my approach has always been to focus in on a geographical area carry out thorough market due diligence or research of that area, and then a reasonable level of deal-specific diligence before I submit an offer. And what I mean by that is that I really understand what's going on in the market area and what the demand is, but the specifics of the building, I've done a certain level of diligence, but what I haven't done is invested hours and hours and hours of time and money in assessing every single project before we've actually got to a point where we agree a price. Now, before we go on, I'll remind you of the context. I'm a private investor. I don't invest in huge, complex commercial projects. So some will agree with my approach and others may find it rather unsatisfactory. But hey, it works for me at my level of investing. If you want to learn about 20 million plus corporate or institutional investing, 
you've come to the wrong podcast. My focus here is to help you get started and to build a portfolio of cash flowing commercial assets. I want to help you do this in a reasonable period of time without going out and doing a university degree in real estate investment. It goes without saying though, you need to bring on the experience of a property lawyer to help you through the next stage of tying up a contract. Most of the time, after an offer has been accepted, the seller's lawyer will draw up an offer to sell, which will hopefully include all the materials that you're going to need to be able to complete your due diligence. Having said that, I have learned over the years that although it is really good, obviously, to have the right lawyer, there's always going to be questions there that you need to know to ask because your lawyer might not necessarily be 100% on the same page as you are and understand exactly what you're trying to do. So in this episode, I'm going to cover some of the things that are on my checklist that I go through when I get to this particular stage of a deal. Some of these items might have already been covered, of course. It just depends on how well the communications have been going with the seller. So let's get back on track. You've just had that offer accepted and you have a few emotions and questions going on in your mind. Things such as, yes, we've got one, to, did I offer too much? What did I miss out? What does everyone else know that I don't? Oh my goodness, what do I need to do now? Or if you're like me, where do I get the money for this one? Today, I'm going to give you some help and a checklist about the question of, oh my goodness, what do I need to do now? It's a checklist to make sure both myself and my lawyer know what we're dealing with. There are lots of moving parts and it's easy to see why even a lawyer might miss one. I would like to say this list is exhaustive and I've covered every angle, but of course, unfortunately, I can't. It's not that black and white. Every project's going to be different and therefore will have its own unique build-up and complications that you're just going to have to figure out. It's worth pointing out here that this process could lead to further negotiation, of course. So it's worthwhile not only doing this from a point of view of making sure that all the stones are turned, but also that you might have some items that you can further negotiate on. It's not a case of doing all the negotiation up front and agreeing the price and that's it. Because further due diligence can illuminate issues that it's only right to then negotiate about. Now, it might be that the seller is in a situation where they don't need to negotiate on price and you're going to have to take a view on it. Anyway, let's rattle through a few. I'm going to assume there is some kind of lease or contract in place, by the way, and the building is not necessarily completely vacant. That's often the way we buy buildings. I'm also not adding in the extra layer of leasehold. There will be some additional quirks that you'll need to look at based around the leasehold itself, but I'm looking at really the contract level down with tenants. And often the building that we buy has partial occupancy, as I say, so there are existing leases and contracts in place. And the first part of this is around the due diligence of that lease. Then I'll go into more general items that have sort of popped up over the years. Let's have a look at the lease first. You need to see the full lease, of course, or contracts. Doesn't necessarily mean there's a lease in place. There might be licenses to occupy. There might be a management agreement in place. But they can run into many, many pages. And we've seen some leases over the years that have been over 100 pages each. I'm sure some of you have seen ones that are even longer. And reading through them can be pretty mind-numbing. Because not only are they so long, but they're all in lawyer speak. And sometimes in speak that's from many centuries ago, or so it seems. But that's what you've got a lawyer for, right? To help you on your way, though, here are some of the key things that I look for in an existing contract. 
and let's start off with the basics. First one, the lease length. If there are multiple leases, do all those end dates tie up or are they all over the place? Does the paperwork actually match what you've been told? Is the existing lease actually correct? Who's the lease actually relating to? Both the lease E and the lease R. How much is the lease for? Does that match what you've been told? Remember, there may be an amendment or assignation of the lease. So you need to make sure that you have the details. Assignation, by the way, is just a fancy word to say the tenant has assigned the lease to another party. There's a bit more to it, but I don't want to bore the pants off you. So let's go into more of the details. This is one I've come across a few times. How are the service charges accounted for? These service charges, these are, these are charges for things like common repairs, maintenance, sometimes utilities. So if you've got a multi-let building, it may have leases in place, but there may be clause in there about service charges. And it's really identifying what's included and what's not. How much do you have to pay for and how much do the tenants pay for? So, for instance, is there a cap in place? So actually, no matter how much the service charges are, there's only a certain level that the tenant will have to pay. Are they divided up proportionally? Is it amongst all the tenants? Is it 50%, 75%? Is it basically done pro rata on the square footage that they have? How is it divided up? What you're really looking for is, is there any liability here for you that hasn't really been mentioned? Another aspect of the service charges, the building insurance. Often that's added in as a separate line item and is completely recoverable for the tenant, from the tenant. And then the last one I've got on that little short list about service charges, what actually is the frequency of the service invoicing? Does it fit in with every quarter or every month that you charge the rent? And then are there annual adjustments at the end? That's certainly how it normally is done, but worth checking out. The next one I have on my list is the details of that sublease or assignation. So I mentioned that earlier on when I was talking about how much is the lease for and, you know, are there any amendments, i.e. has it been increased or anything at any point? Or indeed, has there been any special agreements put in place that are separate to the lease? But you need to find those details out, that sublease or that assignation. The sixth one, I know I've not been numbering them with you, but the sixth one I have on my list is the frequency of the rent payment. This will actually affect the transaction amount, if there are any accruals. Is the rent quarterly? Is it monthly? When does the tenant pay the rent? And if your transaction date that you're aiming to buy this building is, say, the 1st of February, but the rental payments are due on the 1st of January, which may or may not be the case, and let's say they pay quarterly, then there'll be two months of rent i.e. February and March, that are already been paid to the existing owner and you need an apportionment paid back to you and what tends to happen is that is settled on the day of the transaction. So actually the amount that you have to pay over might be less than you think because there's some rent to take off, there may be some deposits to take off and a few other things to think about. Rent review. Is there any provision for it? Has it been exercised already? Is it linked to anything such as retail price index or consumer price index? Is it upward only, the review? Does it require a valuer to evaluate market rate? So there should be a clause in there somewhere about rent review. And most importantly, are there any break clauses in there that haven't been mentioned? (laughs) 
So, which sometimes they're not. So there might be a break clause in there where basically it might be a five-year lease, but in year three, if the tenant gives enough notice, they can exercise a break, which means they can get out of the lease two years early. Now, there will be factors around that. As I say, they'll need to give a certain notice period, and it might be that that notice period is an entire year, and they might miss it. But it's important to see, have they been exercised? Are there any coming up? The last one I had on the lease element was to do with dilapidations. This is one that I look out for, and it can be costly or it can be very beneficial. Depends if there's one there or not and how it's written up. The dilapidations is all about the condition of the property when it's been handed back by the tenant versus the condition it was in when the tenant took charge. So over a period of time, there will be certain elements of compliance, for starters, but also other elements within the lease that will be required to have been done. It might be painting, it might be the electric provision and testing, it might be something to do with security, the exterior maintenance, gutters, you name it. There'll be lots of things in the dilapidations. And when the tenant finally leaves, there may be a lot of work that needs doing, and there may be a clause there in dilapidations that covers that. So actually you could be due a bit of a lump sum, which is there to allow you to bring the building back up to good condition. But nevertheless, it can be significant. It can be many, many thousands of pounds. But if the dilapidations clause isn't there or isn't written up right, it may be a lot less. It's really important to read through that and get some advice on how that looks because it could really influence, actually, the value of the deal. Now, there are other things unrelated to the lease agreement, which I'm going to go into in a minute, but just quickly topping off those lease ones. First one was lease length. Second is who's the lease actually relating to? Is it correct? Or at least as you understand it. How much is the lease for? How is the service charge accounted for? Have you got details of sublease or assignations? What's the frequency of the rent payment? When is the rent review? Are there any break clauses? And that big one, the dilapidations clause. Incidentally, dilapidations for us, so far, out of the leases we've taken on and people have then left, have worked out to be almost a year's worth of rent. It's amazing. And that's after negotiation. Let's move on to those other things to check off that are not necessarily specifically related to the lease. Here's one. Who or what ultimately owns it? The property, that is. And where are they based? Now, that seems an obvious one, right? But are they based in the UK or the US or Australia, wherever it is you're based yourself and the property is, or are they overseas? Because when they're overseas, it starts bringing in other issues, which again, I am not going to be able to advise you on. You need to talk to a lawyer and it depends on where you are, but actually it can be quite important, can be crucial. And you might need to get certain guarantees and certain things indemnified if you're in that position where you're buying a building that's actually owned by an overseas offshore company. Something we've come across before when we've bought a building and it can add a layer of complexity. So you need to know who ultimately owns it, who's selling it to you. So the next one was capital allowances. So in the UK, there's certain capital allowances you can claim on um, movable parts, fixtures and fittings in the buildings, machinery, that sort of thing. And it can be quite substantial. But you need to know up front what's being claimed by the current owner, what's being declared. And there is a certain form, and 
I should really be able to tell you exactly what that is for the UK. I'm sorry I don't have the, the thing on the tip of my tongue. But there is a form that the owner needs to fill out to pass the building on to you. Because basically HMRC has a, or will have a record against the title or against the title reference of what has been claimed on this building. And that will form part of the negotiation. If they've claimed all the capital allowances, then you can't claim any. And equally, if they haven't claimed any, then you might have an opportunity to claim some capital allowances. Capital allowances is another whole podcast, of course, but let's just say it can be um, a very useful tool to reduce your tax. Anyway, the fourth one on the list is deposits. Are there any deposits? Clearly, it's most important to know there are any, not least because at the end, when the tenant moves out, particularly if they're on a license and there's been a deposit, and they have a license that says there's a deposit, but the current owner says there wasn't, there's a disparity there. And what you don't want to do is get to a situation where the tenant moves out and wants their deposit back, and you've never had that accounted for when you did the transaction. So you need to make sure that happens. And equally, of course, if there is a deposit, that will again come off that transaction amount and actually reduce the amount you have to pay on the day. Obviously, you'll still be due deposits to people at some point. The fifth one on the overall list here is title. So it's the usual stuff when you get the title. Is the area actually the area you think it's going to be? Are there any restrictions for future use? That's kind of important. Access for surrounding properties or way leaves, what's in place? Is that going to be restrictive for you? Or did that big plan you had for that car park at the rear of the building for storage or anything actually going to be a bit scuppered because somebody needs access? Could be a deal breaker. You need to have a look at these things. Does the title plan itself tie up with any of the existing leases or are there any discrepancies? So if you're looking at a fully let building, and there is title there that shows you that there's a discrepancy between what's leased out and what is on the actual title, then it might be that you are now liable for those areas that are not within the lease that may well be a full repairing and insuring lease to a tenant, but actually there's elements of it that aren't covered. So you're now liable and there'll be certain things and obligations that you'll need to put in place. So the next one um, is related to tax. VAT, in fact. So in the UK, value-added tax, as it's called, lovely tax that we have here, it is the property elected to tax. So in the UK, that basically means that if the building's elected to tax and you are VAT registered, then you need to charge VAT on the rent and other charges. What's crucial here is that you and your team understand what the state of the building is in terms of its election to tax whether you're going to elect to tax it yourself, whether your operating company needs to elect to tax it if you're doing it in that um, in a propco opco, and of course, with that element, what's the implication of the purchase price? Does it have to have VAT added to it, which is therefore a lump of money you're going to have to find somewhere else, or can it be transferred as a going concern? Again, there's a whole podcast episode there around VAT, really. But it's just important that your your team understands the process and what they need to do and the sequence of those things. Really, it's the question to ask your lawyer and, I'm afraid, the accountant. And it's trying to get the two of them to talk together, of course, which is not always easy. So the next one is, can you get a full profit and loss on the property? What is currently happening? 
with expenditure, really. Now, it might be if there's a full lease there that there's very little expenditure, but there will be some elements that could still be your liability. Or at least you need to check out whose liability they are. One of those is business rates or property taxes. And the other, of course, is water rates. Who's liable for them? I know I'm encroaching on the lease chat again from earlier on, but it's kind of important to know where they sit. And also, longer term, if there's any ways of potentially mitigating those. I'll come on to that again in a little bit, actually. So the next one was, are there any previous grants that might have potential ramifications for you? Has there been any initiatives by local authority for heating or insulation? Are there any initiatives or grants from historic or for historic buildings? And sometimes there are little clauses put in to those grants that mean that when they're sold, there may be a clawback. It might not necessarily directly affect you, it will affect the owner, but you need to be aware of these things. The ninth one on the overall list is the lawyer review of any title restrictions from previous owners. So there may actually be some specific clauses in there that say you shall not develop houses or um, have an establishment that sells alcohol or all these sorts of things. And they can be written into the title and you can't do anything about it, at least not without a lot of effort. And then the last two on the list there, directly related to the stuff you want to be getting from the lawyers, is the EPC certificate, which you may have seen already, but you need to get it and get a good review of it, make sure it's in date and that there are no skeletons there that you need to deal with. And the other one, the other kind of report, I guess, is the asbestos certificate. What is in this building? They all should have an asbestos report and you should be able to see it and see what's been identified and therefore, again, what liabilities there are. Asbestos on itself doesn't mean you should immediately walk away from the deal. It's just a tricky item, of course, and you need specialists and it can be expensive to have it removed. So I'm just going to quickly run through that list again. The first thing was the leases and all the different elements which I've covered. The second is who ultimately owns the property. What are the situation with capital allowances? Are there any deposits, the title, usual things, what's the area, any restrictions, access for surrounding properties, does the title plan tie up with any leases? The sixth one was, is the property elected to tax? The seventh is a full P&L, if you can get it, of what's going on, particularly with the expenses. Any previous grants or potential ramifications for you from initiatives that have come out from either central government or local. Ninth one, the lawyer review of any title restrictions from previous owners. Ten was the EPC certificate and eleven was the asbestos certificate. A couple of extra things just to throw in here. Hopefully you've already looked into what's happening locally and done your analysis on that local market, but now let's get much more detail on the competition. Check out your assumptions and calculations. Do some tours and further research to back up or challenge your previous findings because now at some point someone's going to sign because this process has started, is going to sign and you are going to be committed to the deal. So make sure you're comfortable with your assumptions and calculations on what's going on in the local market. And maybe at this point you should check in with a mentor, do a sound check, find somebody that's maybe a wee bit further down the track. I mean, I've done this on a number of projects where I've looked at the numbers and I'm not quite sure and I just go and do a reality check with a mentor of mine just to make sure that I'm, I'm doing things sensibly. And the last one I'm just going to throw in here, because sometimes it can be really important to deals, particularly if they're deals that are vacant possession, is just do a reassessment of your 
business rates or property tax mitigation, the assumptions that you've made on that, it's time to get those confirmed, particularly if it can make or break a deal. And don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about um, avoiding tax here. There are a number of legitimate ways and government incentives to help alleviate business rates or property taxes when you're redeveloping, but you need to do your homework because some councils and areas are quite different than others. In the UK, of course, we have different home nations as well, and they all do it slightly differently, so you do need to investigate that. But particularly if you're buying vacant possession and part of your business strategy is based around business rate mitigation, double-check that that's going to be possible for whatever time frame it is. So... There we go then. I know I won't have covered everything, but it should be a good start for you. As I mentioned at the start, having a lawyer on the case is paramount. But sometimes your path and theirs can be a wee bit different, and it might not be aligned. It's better to ask the question and appear a daft laddie, rather than not ask the question and lose money. Remember, this is not a place for egos. I wouldn't worry about what other people think if you're asking daft questions. I would just let time prove you right. By the time we've published this episode, there will be other things, of course, that pop into my mind. But we've got to stop somewhere. If you have any checklists that you would like me to cover, then just drop me a line and I'll see if I can help. Alternatively, drop a note or a post onto the Facebook group. All the usual W's, facebook.com forward slash commercial property investor. That should get you to the page where you just need to click on the private group, answer a few simple questions, and you can join us in there for many discussions about commercial property. We do work really hard on making sure the content posted in there by ourselves or others is just relevant to commercial property, and not just anything. So the content should be concentrated on the commercial property market for you. Well, we've covered a big old list there, and if you made it to the end of the podcast, well done. <laughs> Not all commercial property investing is quite so intense or boring as some may see, but you do need to know the details. As they say, the devil is in the detail. If you're serious about doing commercial property, then don't forget our mastermind and membership programs where we can help fast track you into commercial property investment. Each program is hosted by myself and I have elements that are tailored to you, the individual. So if you want to know more, then just reach out. There'll be the usual links in the show notes. Or if you just want to find out what we're up to, jump on Instagram. You'll find me, jerryalexander.commercial, and you can keep up with projects I'm doing. I'm trying to give regular updates on development activities and things that we're up to. I've even managed, I'm quite proud of, I've even managed to give each site its own hashtag. So now you can go onto my Instagram account and select the highlight section and see some of the different projects as they've developed or as they're developing. Thanks again for joining us. See you next time and have a great week in commercial.